up here and listen and so on. Your heart will beat about 115,000 times each day. Did you know that? It pumps about 2,000 gallons of blood every day. The heart is, of course, an incredible muscle. Uh, the heart can continue beating even when it's disconnected from the body. I did not know that. It'll continue to keep beating. Which mammal has the largest heart? Any ideas? It's a whale. The whale has the largest heart of any mammal. Which day of the week do heart attacks most likely happen? Monday. You got to go back to work, I guess, huh? <laughs> Which day of the year is the most common day for heart attacks to happen? This is interesting. I did not know this. Christmas Day. Christmas Day. The uh, triple crown of thoroughbred racing, if we switch subjects here to keep talking about the heart, though, it comprises of three races for uh, three-year-old thoroughbred horses. You know what they are? You're shaking your heads. I'm not hearing anything. What are they? The Kentucky Derby, the Preakness Stakes, and the Belmont Stakes. Yep. In 1973, boy, I wish I was older than four years old at that time, because I would have loved to watch this. Secretariat uh, became only the ninth horse to win all three races, and he did so in record-setting fashion. He set track records in each race that still stand to this day. Did you guys know that? His most memorable, memorable race was the Belmont Stakes. The Kentucky Derby and the Preakness Stakes are shorter racetracks designed to test a horse's speed. The Belmont Stakes is a longer track designed to test a horse's endurance, and it is considered the graveyard for speed horses. Secretariat not only won the Belmont Stakes in 1973, but he did so in dominating fashion. Do you know how many links he won by? 31 links. His winning time in the Belmont Stakes and his margin of victory, and this was, what, 37 years ago? Is that right? 1973 or 47 years ago? 47 races. But his winning time and his margin of victory, they have never been approached at the Belmont Stakes. Now, what made Secretariat not only a speed horse, but also an endurance horse? Do you know what it was? The size of his heart. Dr. Thomas Swersek, who performed the necropsy, I guess that's how you say it, that discovered just how big Secretariat's heart was. He, he quotes, we were all shocked. He said, I've seen and done thousands of autopsies in horses, and nothing I'd ever seen compared to it. The heart of the average horse weighs about nine pounds. The heart of the average human being, size of your fist, weighs about one pound. Secretariat's heart was almost twice the average size, and a third larger than any equine heart 
I'd ever seen. And it wasn't pathologically enlarged. All the chambers in the valves were normal. It was just larger. I think it told us why he was able to do what he did. It was weighed, and on the internet you can find that his heart weighed 22 pounds. See, it's all about the heart. Now, obviously, maintaining a healthy heart through diet and exercise should be and must be a concern of every human being. Heart disease is still the leading cause of death for men and women. Uh, by the way, the woman, a female heart, it beats a little faster than the male heart. Uh, one person dies every 37 seconds in the United States from cardiovascular disease. And just under 650,000 Americans die from heart disease each year. So that's one in every four deaths. There have been three men from my family that I'm aware of that have died from a heart attack that I'm blood-related to. My great-grandfather on my mother's side died in his 80s from a heart attack. In fact, I was back in Ohio just mentioning, talking to my mom about this very thing. He was outside mowing the lawn, and he sat down in the shade to take a break, and his heart gave out. My grandfather on my dad's side, he died in the bathroom of a heart attack. He was a thin man, like 6'1", six, 6'2", six, but he was a smoker and a drinker. Uh, my dad's younger brother, Lynn, died in his 30s of a heart attack, and he'd served with Marines during reconnaissance uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, the unique stress of that service to his, company, uh, to his country plus his exposure to Agent Orange, uh, contributed to his heart attack. His autopsy re report revealed he had the hardened arteries of an 80-year-old man. But the heart, again, is to be a concern for every human being. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you to open our word and talk about being pure in heart, we shall see God. I ask that you would speak through me and speak through us. Speak to our hearts by enlightening the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your words to us. For your words are not just intellectually understood, but they need to be spiritually discerned. Speak through me to bring you glory, not to glorify myself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's talk about real quickly what I call the uh, concern of the heart. In Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The first thing that we learn from this beatitude and what I want you to get is that Jesus is concerned with our heart. Not physically, but spiritually. It is not enough. Let me say this again, it is not enough to clean up our act on the outside. In Matthew 23, 25, and 26, Jesus says this to people that cleaned up the outside, but the inside was full of corruption. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So we see that Jesus, when we look at the, the idea of the heart, 
from not only this verse, but from other verses about the heart in the New Testament, Jesus is in the business of changing the hearts of sinners. Hopefully everybody in here is a believer and your heart has changed. That's why you are here. Now I want you to rightly understand how important the heart is to Jesus. So I want you to consider this thought that I discovered uh, from the author John Piper. And this is kind of shocking, but I want you to hear it. Jesus would not be satisfied with a society in which there were no acts of adultery. Say, what? Says the aim of Jesus Christ is not to reform the manners of society, but to change the hearts of sinners. This is what Jesus meant when he spoke on adultery. Remember what he said? You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who what? Looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. Jesus would not be satisfied with a society in which there is no adultery. In a society where there is no physical acts of adultery, what is happening? The invisible yet impure thoughts and intentions in the heart that God sees to lust after a woman are in God's eyes as if what? The physical act has actually occurred. Because God looks at the heart. You might remember the famous verse from 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. So again, God looks at the heart. Now, why does God look at the heart? And here's the key. Because the heart is where you are. The heart is where you are. If you just consider the tree, you guys have trees around here, pine trees, all different kinds of deciduous trees and so on. Jesus says, what you are at the invisible root matters as much to him as what you are in the visible branch. He said this in Matthew 12, 33, either make the tree good and what? The fruit will be good. You make the tree bad, and its fruit is bad. The tree is known by its fruit. So simply put, as a, a reminder, we all know this, but we forget it, we live from the heart. We live from the heart. From our thoughts, think about this, Proverbs 23, 7. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. So our thinking comes from the heart. Our words, again, we live from the heart. Our words, for out of the abundance of the heart, Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks. Your words, your language indicate what is in your heart. Even our actions. Matthew 15, 19 again. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, but also these. Murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. 
your heart reveals your priorities. For where your treasure is, how does it go? There your heart will be also. So understanding these issues of the heart, I think and I hope and pray that we can now appreciate the wisdom of Solomon. Written thousands of years before the time of Jesus, but above all else, he says what? Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Let that sink in. What is the priority? Your priority is not avoiding coronavirus. Although it feels like it, doesn't it? Your priority is not uh, to hold down a job. Your priority is not to eat. It's not to acquire possessions. Above all those things, what is the priority? Guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Life issues from your heart. Remember I told you in Hebrews chapter 4, what's God going to do? He's going to grab you by the throat and hold you down, rush you down, and rip you up. And the word of God is that, that, that knife, that surgical knife that's going to cut through bone and marrow. You know, thoughts and intentions, your spirit. It's going to divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a critically looking at for fault in your life. You can't hide from this. This is what will happen in the day of judgment. That's how he defeats his enemies, by the, the sword of God, the, the, the word that comes out of his mouth. So what's he looking at? Well, it's the attitudes, it's the thoughts, the intentions, and those all come from the heart. So you, above all else, guard your heart. Now, of course, guarding your heart means more than just a defensive position. You know, David prayed that, you know, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. So in other words, what's coming out, guard it so that I don't say something I shouldn't say. Well, what comes out should be good things, and only what comes out is what you put in, right? So you put in good, and the tree will be good, the fruit will be good. This is part of guarding your heart. And of course, you need to have the truth in you. And the truth is in his word. And we are in a war, folks. Again, I remind you, we're in a war for the truth. We are seeing it play out every day in our lives. My wife is telling me that in the state of Utah, some of her, her um, Boeing employees, is that correct? that were looking at either coming to Washington or, or, or they saw what was going on in Washington because everything was Boeing in Washington, you know, that they don't, it's not mandatory to wear masks, is that correct, in Utah? At the Boeing plant, yeah, but they're, like, they're doing sports, they're doing life as normal, you wear a mask or, you know, it, the kids are going back to school and everything and they have a very, very low rate of this disease being transmitted. You can imagine me being a, 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 a big college football fan and Ohio State fan. You know that. Well, they're playing football in, in Cleveland, the Browns, coming up a couple of weeks. 
in Cincinnati with the Bengals. They're playing high school football as well, but they're not playing football at the university level. I mean, how can that be, right? Now, I do acknowledge that there is this virus, but I don't know if it's as bad as we think or have been led to believe. And it certainly is not bad enough to where churches don't need to meet. So unless there is a massive outbreak, again, and there's like a, and there's statewide or nationwide breakdown, we will not shut down this church. We need to fellowship. But guard your heart. Put the truth of God in you. Now, I say behind the scenes, the theme of the heart, it runs through all the Beatitudes. Because we are radically corrupt in the heart, Jeremiah 17, 9, our most righteous acts are as filthy rags before God, Isaiah 64, 6. Therefore, we are spiritually bankrupt, unable to live a righteous enough life to earn being in his presence. Because the heart has a natural bent towards sin, we live in a near constant state of confession and mourning over our failures. The heart is susceptible to pride. It naturally opposes meekness. And because of sin's deceitfulness, the heart is easily distracted and prone to hunger and thirst after the things of the world rather than to hunger and thirst after God. And a hardened heart is unable to feel mercy and thus extend it to others. So I want you to see it. The theme of the heart, without taking center stage, it's interwoven throughout all of the Beatitudes. But in particular, this Beatitude puts a spotlight on the heart and reminds us that the heart is absolutely crucial to Jesus. What you are, what we are, in the deep private recesses of our lives is what he cares about the most. And we don't like to hear that, but God looks at the heart, which is why he says, blessed are the pure in heart. They get to see God. And let's talk about for a moment here, maybe open your eyes to what it, this verse means, single-mindedness. The word pure in this verse it's a Greek word, and it does not have so much to do with cleanliness, although it is certainly inferred, but it has to do more with unity or singleness of heart or mind. That's what the word pure means. It literally means, blessed is that which is unmixed. Blessed is that which is unmixed. Now, growing up in a family of six, when back in the day, one parent worked, uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up as a family, as a child. My mom wanted to feed us healthy, and so we ate a lot of fish, particularly tuna and salmon. So much tuna and salmon to this day, my kids will tell you, and Erica, I rarely eat fish. But we also grew up on a different kind of milk. As you may know, there are many different kinds of milk. There is fat-free or skim milk. This is what I grew up drinking and I hated it. It is basically white colored water. <laughs> and it does not taste good at all. 
and I let my mom know it almost every time I see her. I blame her. Well, next there is low-fat milk. It doesn't taste good either. Then there's 2% milk, and it's reduced fat milk, but it doesn't taste bad. It's what we drink in our home. It's what my kids were raised on. They weren't going to be anything near skim milk with a 10-foot pole, okay? But the best-tasting milk is, of course, what? Whole milk. Now, we're talking about pure milk. Won't be referring to skim milk? No. Talk about whole milk. And that is the emphasis behind the word pure in Matthew 5.8. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, what he is talking about is those who have a whole heart or a heart of integrity. And the pure in heart... See, there are those who do not have divided hearts. They're not double-minded. And again, the word pure literally means singleness of heart. And the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he wrote a book, and I always remembered this phrase for some reason. He wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And that might be what you want to write down and remember. Purity of heart is to will one thing. Let me show you where that definition comes from in the scriptures. So I want you to turn to Psalm 24. Psalm chapter 24, verses 3 through 6. This is the closest Old Testament parallel to uh, Matthew 5, 8. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, in essence, David asks three questions. Or actually asks the question, what kind of person can be in the presence of God? You see that? And he lists four requirements. Number one, it's clean hands, which is another way of saying you have a holy lifestyle. Number two, he says what? You must have a pure heart. See, the deeds are holy only because the heart is pure. And we get an idea of what David means by a pure heart in the last two requirements. No falsehood. A pure heart has nothing to do with falsehood. And a pure heart avoids deceitfulness. It is painstakingly truthful and free from deceit. That is a pure heart. A pure heart wills one thing. A pure heart wills one thing. Now the closest parallel in the New Testament is James chapter 4 verse 8. Go to your Bible maker right all the way near the end. Right before Revelation. The book of Hebrews and you find the book of James. James chapter 4 verse 8. 
James writes this, come near to God, and watch the parallel between Psalm 24 and James chapter 4. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Intimacy with God, seeing God. Coming near to God, as James put it. That's what he's referring to there. It depends on purifying your heart. Notice that just like Psalm 24, there's a reference to both clean hands and a pure heart as preparation of drawing near to God or to ascending the hill of the Lord. Now, how are the men described who need to purify their hearts? What does James call them? Double-minded. They are men that will two things. Does that make sense? Not just one thing, they will two things. Now, what does this double-mindedness look like? Well, in James chapter 4, verse 4, he explains it to us. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So the double-minded man of verse 8 has a divided heart between the world and God. Purity of heart, on the other hand, is to what? Will one thing. In this case, full and total and complete allegiance to God. Let's look at a double-minded man from the Old Testament. Everyone turn to Genesis chapter 13. We'll spend some time talking about a double-minded man in a story that I think you may recall. If not, uh, it'll be a good education for you. We're going to look at that a little bit. Take some time and look at the story of Lot. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 into the wilderness, actually his name was Abram, but into the wilderness, Abraham brought with him his nephew Lot. Now as the time passed, both men were blessed by God with livestock to the point that the land could not support both herds. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 8. Is everybody there? So, so Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. It's not the whole land before you. Let's not part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. By the way, that right now, right then and there, what we read about Abram tells you how meek he was. The promise was given to who? Abram or to Lot? The promise of, of all the land and of the blessing to all the nations. And what does he do? You get the first choice. Well, why? Blessed are the meek, for they show what? It's all going to be yours in the end anyways, right? So be a blessing. So Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, toward Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Now watch this. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. 
Now, the first step towards double-mindedness begins with an unwise choice. In Lot's case, it began where he chose to live. He pitched his tents near Sodom. Now, Moses wrote Genesis, and he points this out, and the very next verse mentions the renowned wickedness of Sodom. Now, the impact of this poor choice on Lot is seen in his sad but predictable conformity to the pressures of a wicked culture, to the pressures of the world. Now, Lot's story is picked up in Genesis 19. Turn to Genesis 19. In Genesis 18, God is now going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to destroy it. He sends two angels and to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and they met Lot at the entrance to the city of Sodom. Now, I want you to pay attention here. Look where Lot is now living. The two angels arrived, verse 1, at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. So Lot no longer is living near the wicked city of Sodom, but is now living in the wicked city of Sodom. The temptations to be like his neighbors was so great, Lot has begun to compromise his beliefs. He has become a part of its culture. And to be fair to Lot, he is referred to by Peter as righteous Lot. See, he had faith in the promise of God given to Abraham. And the righteous shall live by faith. That's how you're justified in God's eyes. That's why he is righteous. It's also true that Lot didn't give up his belief in the high moral standards he had learned from his uncle Abraham. He also didn't approve, as we'll see, of the wicked things he saw and heard. But his double-mindedness, it limited his influence and weakened his spiritual power. Let me explain. In ancient times, and by the way, if you turn to Job chapter 29, read what's what Job is lamenting there, when all the suffering he's going through, he laments the fact that he used to sit at the entrance of the city gates. People would come to him and seek his advice, as they did for the elders at, at that time in the ancient Near East. So here's Lot. And in ancient times, people would seek the counsel of older men at the city gate. Lot was obviously a part of that group. He was sitting at the gateway of the city. And as an official at the city gate, we would call them like elders or wise men, they had gray hair, they often exerted enormous influence over the culture. But Sodom was about to be destroyed, indicating Lot had little impact on the wicked society in which he had been a part of for some time. Now you might be thinking, aren't you being a little harsh on Lot? I don't think so. Do you remember how God used the single-minded Daniel to influence an entire kingdom? You would not say Daniel, i.e. Daniel the lion's den, was double-minded, would you? No. If Lot had been single-minded, perhaps just ten righteous men would have been found in Sodom, and then God would not have destroyed the city. In Genesis 18, remember the story? Abraham is bargaining with God. 
Don't destroy Sodom. If there are 50 men and 40, and he goes all the way down and barks them down to 10. If there are just 10 righteous men, don't destroy Sodom. Lot had been there for years. He was unable to convert all those people, just, just, just convert 10 righteous men. Lot's double-mindedness, it limited his influence and his spiritual power, but it weakened his thinking. It perverted his thinking. When the homosexual men of the city found out Lot had male visitors, you know what they did? They wanted to have sexual relations with them. You read that in Genesis 19. So what does Lot do? <clears throat> he offers his daughters, that were virgins, as a less deviant way to satisfy their immoral sexual desires. Now, both actions were detestable to God, but it shows how much Lot had compromised his beliefs and contented himself with sin rather than leaving Sodom. And, I mean, his influence was almost nothing. Lot's double-mindedness so weakened his influence, even his family members would not take him seriously. He couldn't even convince his sons-in-law and their wives, which were his daughters, to leave Sodom before God's judgment fell in Genesis 19.14. Only he, his wife, and the two daughters still living at home escaped. But the exclamation point of the devastating consequences of double-minded behavior is shown by Lot's wife. Having escaped the destruction of Sodom, her divided heart wants one more look at the city she apparently had grown to love. And in disobedience, what does she do? She looks back and is instantly turned into a pillar of salt, the perfect picture of double-mindedness. Now, that's the double-minded person, the exact opposite of a single-minded person, which is the double-minded, the exact opposite of someone who is pure in heart. Now, to those who are not double-minded, but are pure in heart, there is a special promise. I want to talk about that. They shall see God. Let me read to you how it should go. This is the way it should be written in the, it is written in the Greek, and this is how it's just translated a little bit differently. The same point, but this is what it actually reads. They shall be continually seeing God for themselves. So blessed are pure in heart, they shall be continually seeing God for themselves. Now what does that mean? But when your heart is purified at salvation, you're justified in God's sight by faith. He transfers the righteousness of Christ to your account so that when God sees you, he sees Jesus Christ's righteousness. You are admitted into God's presence. You actually begin to live in the presence of God. Now, you don't see God with the physical eye. You see him with the spiritual eye, which is why I pray that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, give us a spiritual understanding. And your spiritual eyes are opened and you begin to comprehend God in strange and new ways. You begin to realize that God is always with you. You begin to see him in creation. You begin to see him in your circumstances. You become awestruck by his glory. 
You see, virtually all of our spiritual sight in this life is brought about through the word of God or the work of God in providence in your circumstances. See, we see images and reflections of his glory. We hear echoes and reverberations of his voice. But there will come a day when God himself will dwell among us. And his glory will no longer be inferred from lightning and mountains and roaring seas and in the constellation of stars. Instead, our experience of him will be direct. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, great verse. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even I has been even as I have been fully known. This face-to-face encounter with God, the very thing that Moses longed for. Remember that? Let me see your glory. Let me see your face. Thomas, you know, show us the Father. That'll be enough. There's coming a day when those who have a pure heart will see him face to face. And as you walk with him more and more and more, you are more single-minded as you grow in the Lord, you're sanctified as you grow up and mature in the Lord, you should see more and more of God. And this we will have if we are pure in heart. Let's pray. Father, as we close this word this morning, we thank you. May we will one thing, that we may see you, for that is enough. Amen. I'd like for you this week, if you can please stand, we're going to close with a song. Ask yourself this question. What is holding you back from single-minded allegiance to God? Just surrender it to him. Surrender what is holding you back from single-minded allegiance to God.